Well, thanks for uh, joining me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, just be a good chance to get to know you a bit more. And um, before we go into uh, the, the scientific medical network and Galileo Commission, maybe just to give an overview of your background and formative years. Goodness, well, that, that's, a, that's a large question. Uh, well, I was brought up, brought up in Scotland. Okay. Um, my, my family's partly from Edinburgh and partly from Dundee. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of artistic um, talent in my, my father's family. In fact, at the moment, there is an exhibition in Edinburgh of my great uncle's paintings, John Henry Lorimer, okay. uh, who lived from 1856 to 1936. And there's never been an exhibition of his paintings. So this is the first oh, one okay. with 50 paintings and it's been largely organised by my daughter, Charlotte, so you know, keeping it in the family. Oh wow, amazing. And so my, you know, I was educated in Edinburgh and um, in the south of England <clears throat> and then I did philosophy and languages and economics at St Andrews University. Mm -hmm. And it was the philosophy there that really affected me and had an influence on my, my whole development. Mm -hmm. Um, my my father was um, not interested in spiritual matters at all. It wasn't his thing. And my mother was, um, and was you know quite sensitive um, in in a number of different respects. Mm -hmm. And so that was obviously an influence. Uh, and then uh, in I started uh, working in the city in a merchant bank in 1974. And so I lasted two years until I kind of jacked out of that. I'm impressed you lasted two years. <laughs> well, it was a learning, it's a learning curve. Everything you do in your 20s, you're, yes. you're experimenting to Very see how it's so. going to work. And I, I asked myself, do I really want to be an ex-merchant banker when I'm the age sure. I am now? And my answer was no. <laughs> um, and so I've really spent most of my life in education of, of different kinds. Okay. So I, I did the education course at Cambridge um, in sort of 77, 78. But I spent a very formative year, 76, 77, um, where after I'd left the bank. And <clears throat> I, I took four boxes of books um, in the back of my car, plus a lot of music. And I read those books over the next year. And that really is what's laid the basis for everything I've done since. Okay. So my reading year, you know, my sort of tour, as it were, was really central um, and it, it enabled me to read very, very widely and make kind of broad connections that most people don't have time to do. Mm -hmm. and, and so all the, the reviewing I do now is in the same sort of areas as these four boxes of books um, that I read through okay. you know, when I was 24. What were the four boxes? Were they categorical? No, they didn't or... have, no, they were just, that's how many there were. Ah, I see, you know, just a real four boxes mix is quite of... a lot, it's probably a good hundred what, books. Could you give me a flavour of what sort oh, of Oh, uh, Jung, I had a lot of Jung, yeah. um, I read um, Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler, Study of History mm -hmm. by uh, Toynbee, Man Golden Bow by J.G. Fraser, some of these really, really classic right. um, books. Um, uh, so who are, who are Herman Hesse? Mm -hmm. um, I, I read quite a lot of Herman Hesse when I was when I was out there, mm -hmm. but it was really it was more sort of getting into the into the philosophy. I'd already um, come across Swedenborg, mm -hmm. and, and I was uh, I was on the council of the Swedenborg Society even, even in my twenties. Ah, I was president of the Swedenborg Society about twenty years ago. Um, so those those were and, and at university I think the the most interesting course I did was the French poetry course, 
And it was through that that I found Swedenborg because of a poem by Baudelaire called Correspondences. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, yes, I mean, I think that's kind of, there's a broad, few broad brushstrokes. And what, and what was it that inspired you? Was, uh, were you exposed, when you collected that hall of books, were you exposed to some new perspectives that really um, cemented that sort of path for you? Well, yes, a lot, of, a, lot of the, a lot of my reading list actually came out of um, Colin Wilson's Outsider. And this is a very influential book um, for people of my generation. And I knew Colin, and he actually read my first book and recommended it for the publishers. And because that had, that had a huge you know, range of sources in and around existentialism. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I used that as a kind of guidepost also his second book religion and the rebel mm-hmm. so i use i used those references to read more deeply into the key authors that he was talking about okay. so so colin wilson was a really important point of departure for me okay that's a name to remember because funnily enough that was sort of what struck a chord with me growing up when i was sort of 17 18 was was the philosophy of existentialism and uh the just simply the, the nature of being and asking those fundamental questions which uh, I think drive a lot of us um, and and from my experience especially in my education there wasn't much in that line of thinking there wasn't really much depth to a lot of things that uh, that later I would go on to find more inspiring when I sort of left school and started exploring these ideas similarly to yourself uh, in my 20s reading, reading a bit more of a broader range of, of topics and things so um, yeah, I can definitely empathise with uh, how how eye opening some of these these books can be and these philosophies. And uh, I think, especially for me, given our culture, our Western culture, being exposed to Eastern philosophy as well, that was a big one for me. Of, mm-hmm. of sort of yeah, a, diff- a completely different um, approach to existentialism. Really, there was it was. Yeah, it, it was much more about uh, go, it was going in a completely different direction, so to speak. You know, more and more of a meditative, contemplative experience, whereas, a, whereas the Western world was a bit more. Um, I don't know if obsessed is maybe a bit too strong, but more focused on on the external. The, yes, well, certainly the, science. Yes, exactly. <coughs> is, is like that. But I, the yeah, so I I um, at the university philosophy courses I did which were interesting were theories of human nature Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there was actually a course on existentialism because I was reading French literature Mm -hmm. so I was already reading Camus and Sartre and therefore my French literature so that that gave me a point of entry and another book that another set of books that I had in in the box was um, by the Indian philosopher and statesman Radhakrishnan who was the professor of eastern religions and ethics at at Oxford, the first one, in the 1930s. And then he was ambassador to Moscow and uh, president of India. Mm-hmm. What you're doing now, and uh, maybe you could give um, uh, a summary. So the Scientific and Medical Network was, I think, the first network of its kind. Mm-hmm. And it was deliberately chosen um, because it, it was meant to be informal and people were meant to be able to meet each other talk about the things that mattered, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes confidentially, because these might be areas, and this is still true today, that it's you can't mention to your colleagues. To a degree, mm. yeah. Exactly. 
And so I, I, I'm also the editor of Paradigm Explorer. Um, I've done over 100 issues um, since 1986. And, and this is uh, the journal inundated really with, with books to review. I've got um, piles of sort of almost two metres, certainly, of books still waiting to be reviewed. And, and one, you know, sometimes five arrive every week. Wow. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's quite a, a stretch. And then uh, you asked about the Galileo Commission. Um, we, um, <clears throat> we started this up in, in 2018 and produced a report um, written by Professor Harold Vallach, mm -hmm. supported by about 100 of the most, many of the distinguished people in the whole area of consciousness studies representing 30 universities. Mm -hmm. So the point of doing this was to produce a rigorous report showing that the science of consciousness really needs to be expanded beyond the materialist view. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of evidence for this, uh, in spite of the, the, um, uh, the, the sort of sceptical campaign maintaining there's no evidence at all and that it contradicts the laws of physics. And in fact, at our Beyond the Brain conference, which um, the network puts on every year, uh, we had some speakers absolutely deconstructing this um, over the weekend. Because um, there are there are physicists who have been interested, and even Nobel Prize winners who are interested in the interface between physics and, sure. and parapsychology or psychical research. So it certainly isn't true to say that it's incompatible with physics. And indeed, the whole metaphor of entanglement mm -hmm. um, seems to apply both to quantum mechanics and to parapsychology. It could even be regarded as complementary in, in some respects. Exactly. Well, certainly the, the using that metaphor is very fruitful um, so far as um, finding a theoretical model for um, parapsychology and psychical mm -hmm. research is concerned. And then the other main conference that we do in the networks, I mentioned Beyond the Brain, um, is the Mystics and Scientists Conference. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we've been running this since 1978, every year except last year. Um, for obvious reasons, and with the, the conference was meant to take place in 2020 live, then took place this year uh, online. So everything that we've been doing has obviously been online mm -hmm. um, since March sure. 2020. And so you've spent quite considerable time there. How was, what's that been like exploring the evolution of, of the network as the network grows? Because I imagine when it first started out, it was very. Um, almost clandestine in terms of being quite, um, it's, it's, it was not mainstream thought then, right? No, the study of these, these phenomenolo phenomenological, I can never say that word, yeah. <laughs> experiences. Um, so yeah, how did that look that, and, and has it has it become more mainstream? It feels to me from my readings now, it's, a, it's more mainstream now, but even so, there's still a lot of stigma attached. Yes, I, th I think the, the, what, what has changed is the status of consciousness studies. Right. Um, and so if you go back to even the time, even the mid-80s, when I joined and took things over, um, the, there was a growing interest, but the, there was the waning influence of behaviorism, which had dominated psychology, academic psychology, for 50 years, where there's no such thing as consciousness, mm -hmm. it's just behavior. In other words, there's only a third-person view, objective view, not a first-person subjective view. And <clears throat> so we, we, we held our first Beyond the Brain conference in 1995 at St. John's College, Cambridge. And it was the year before that the Journal of Consciousness Studies um, was established. And I have a complete set of 
the, the, the journals, mm -hmm. which are actually mainly donated to St Andrews University because they, they, their psychologists should be looking at this. And so I think that's become a respectable area of study. Um, but the, the, the sceptical view uh, or the sceptical mindset is still incredibly strong. Sure. And, and, I, and uh, where, while there are increasing numbers of scientists who recognize the importance of spirituality and the centrality of consciousness, there's still the hardcore represented by Wikipedia, for instance, um, still maintains that, that um, this, this is not a science, it's, nothing is reproducible, there's no evidence mm -hmm. for it. Um, all of which is, is not, hasn't been true for over a hundred years. Yeah. It's so the idea that they can actually say this and think they can get away with it. And I, I call the idea that the brain generates consciousness. I've started calling this a central dogma of neuroscience. Yeah, it's getting more and more difficult to defend that position, especially with revelations in quantum mechanics, like you were saying, with entanglement and the way subatomic particles interact with each other and then the observer effect, you know, the, it's such a profound effect, the, the role of consciousness. And it makes me wonder if, if it is reconcilable with that um, aspect of science with, because it's, you're using a completely different toolkit to describe the two, you know, with empiricism and science, you're using uh, testing and reliability. And it's so hard to replicate that with consciousness because it's so much more esoteric and it's much more subjective. How, how do you reconcile those two in your mind? Well, I think this, I think there are, there are two, <clears throat> there are two parts of life and there's an outer and an inner, if you like. So the outer corresponds to this third person scientific uh, view experimentation, where the inner view corresponds to the first person perspective, to subjectivity, to qualia and to experience. Mm -hmm. And so the inner view is about experience and the outer view is about experiment. Mm -hmm. And so in my view, they're complementary. You can't reduce either one to the other. But um, the, the argument that is being increasingly um, accepted, I think, at least among kind of advanced thinkers, is, is some version of the fundamental nature of consciousness. And you, if you go back to the 1930s, you find that almost all the major physicists took that view, um, notably Schrodinger, Planck, and uh, Wolfgang Pauli. And they, they, so they, Planck famously said, you can't get behind consciousness. And of course he's right, um, because everything we do in science and philosophy and in biology, any other discipline, you know, presupposes consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, I, this I think is, and the other important point um, is the relationship between philosophy and science, because um, the, as Robin Collingwood, who wrote essay in metaphysics in the 1940s, he said that um, science begins with questions. And a question contains a presupposition. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, it, ca it cannot be otherwise. So in, uh, one example would be the so-called hard problem of consciousness, uh, which is formulated, how does the brain generate consciousness? And the point is that it's formulated in such a way that you can only get one answer, right. because the answer is the question to the how question, not is, the, is consciousness generated by the brain, which would be the proper scientific mm -hmm. question to ask. Um, and it's a bit like you know the 9/11 Commission, um, who were told not to find out how the towers came down, but how fire brought the towers down. Right. Okay. That was their remit, and so they, so they were they were constrained 
in their, in what they could ask, and and the assumption um, was the one they had to to, to, to incorporate in their conclusion, mm -hmm. namely that fire brought the towers down. Right. Okay. So, so it's just an, it's just another example of the same kind of mm -hmm. circular structure of argument. This observer bias of you know you're you're finding what you're setting out to uh, what that base assumption is 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 coming to fruition in your findings. You're proving what you think essentially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you presuppose what 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 you take to be the answer, mm -hmm. um, and it's neither philosophical nor scientific mm -hmm. you know, to approach things like that. So, how because uh, you have a wide, very wide range of of guests and and topics in um, within the the scientific medical network, and and it's a lot of. It's it's really inspiring all the different people because it's so um, it's so dynamic. You know, there's there's so many different aspects of being human, from health to spirituality to um, community, and and how it's it's something that I've been very consciously working on for for a while now, and all these various aspects of my life to to try and how do I have a fulfilling life, and because um, I think something that on a on a principle basis, something that's that's at the core for me is that. The difficulty with this materialistic worldview is that it reduces it down into this uh, nihilism. For me, it, there was no um, there was no purpose involved when I have that perspective. Maybe when I was a bit, a bit younger. So for me, as I've got older, it's been about developing uh, my spirituality through through non-material uh, values. So that was that was really important for me to to sort of rebuild. That um, that narrative, I guess, you know, we are we are the stories we tell ourselves, and and flipping over from that dogmatic, materialistic worldview to to a more open, uh, spiritual, uh, consciousness central perspective, it doesn't mean you have to throw the rest away, but it's it's just a it's it's such a dramatic shift, and I've seen the the big changes in my life. How how would you characterize your understanding of of your personal philosophy of how you how how you navigate this existential experience? Uh, well, I've I've expressed quite a lot of that in my new book, um, which is called Quest for Wisdom, <clears throat> um, which has twenty five essays in it that I've written over the last uh, last forty years, and I suppose I, I was initially influenced a lot in, in the nineteen eighties by Viktor Frankl. Man's search for meaning mm -hmm. and his experiences in Auschwitz. And if yeah. you can find meaning in that, uh, <clears throat> well, then that's that's a great, great human achievement. Yeah, I've read yes, say yes to life in spite of everything, which is really yeah, that's and a, the that's a beautiful. the what um, what really I mean, what was important for me in in the mid nineteen eighties was coming across Peter Dunov, um, who was a Bulgarian spiritual um, teacher and sage. And I learned Bulgarian in order to be able to read some of this in the original. Um, and I also translated his prayers uh, quite a long time ago now, in uh, 1994. And, and what, what appealed to me about him um, was that it came both from the Christian lineage um, and the Pythagorean Greek Platonic lineage, uh, Orphism. Uh, he was a musician and he emphasized nature and the relationship with nature and living nature at the same time as these five principles, and the principles of love, wisdom, truth, justice, and virtue or goodness. Yep. And these are absolutely central um, for me. And 
And he kept on coming back to them. He said, it's not a matter of believing this, that, or the next thing. It's a matter of how you understand these principles and how you put them into practice. And I think everybody could agree that, you know, the world could do with more love and more wisdom. And I do think that's the direction of travel, that, that, that we are um, edging really with great difficulty, <laughs> you, know, you know, towards this. And, I, and that's what my life is based on. It's based on um, trying to um, exemplify and embody those principles myself mm -hmm. uh, and to be of service. And, and uh, Dunoff said that, that life, love is life for the whole. And, and he distinguishes, he says, love is, is just to be understood in a cosmic sense, not just a personal sense. Um, <clears throat> Gandhi said something very similar when he said that love is an ontological power. And I think we, un we totally underestimate how powerful this is. Uh, and, but I think that we may be able to find ways of um, bringing this into more prominence. And, and enabling people to realize the power of love and the, and the importance of wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, E.F. Schumacher famously said, humanity is now too clever to survive without wisdom. So um, that's, that's, my, my, that's my sort of personal philosophy, um, if you like. And, and uh, that's what, it, that's what under, underpins um, everything I do. And I've become more aware of this and even aligned to it and, and it's it's in the last year and it's also embodied in in, in his panurhythmic uh, dance exercises and uh, every day I do um, a series of exercises some of which involves you know may divine love uh, live in my soul mm -hmm. uh, may the blessings of God descend on my soul and and uh, and there's other movements about justice and balance and so the, these these things are very important, especially if you can embody them. Yes. Yeah, very well put. Yeah, it's it's not easy though to embody these these principles. You know, it it takes time to develop these these uh, values, and I think the esoteric nature of them makes them so um, elusive for a lot of people because it's not something that you can grasp or. Um, understand with the mind it's it's more of a feeling in my experience you know you're you're garnering a certain feeling towards love and like you say the importance of of love to be beyond the individual that unconditional uh, love is is something that I think just is is woo-woo for a lot of people in a lot of respects is that they that we're so caught up in this culture of you know attaching being attached to not only our physical form but to other people other things and and assigning value to things and judgment on things it's you you almost have to go in the complete opposite direction of that and become detached and this is something in my personal experience that i've found quite revolutionary is there's there's so much love in detachment because it's not about you anymore you know you you have this space between things that are happening to to just find and connect with that sense of love that is that is beyond myself getting yourself out of the way exactly yeah because we often get in our own way we're our own worst enemy i think a lot of the time and um it just takes yeah it's been a it's been a constant iteration throughout my life of of, of trying to um trying to let go that's that's all it is really it's it's just letting go and uh surrendering a lot of the time because it's it's the mind that wants 
there's no space for the love when when the mind's there, when there's desire, when there's uh, fear, and you're trying to control things. You know, that's when we lose sight of that more uh, divine connection that we all have within us. And well, we kind of interfere with it, interfere with the reception because mm -hmm. the, the, in order to receive these things, you have to spend time in silence. There's no, there's no other way. Correct. Or also spend time in nature. Mm -hmm. Be 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 where you are in in nature, and and take it all in, mm -hmm. and don't just you know have the mind chattering away you know, while you're having a walk, and then you're not in the present because of course a lot of spiritual practice is about bringing us back into the present. Sure, definitely. I think I think that's the you put the nail on the head. Why this is so hard for our society is because of the nature of our culture it doesn't give you respite doesn't give you a chance to reflect, doesn't give you a break from the snowball of your mind just, uh, you know, collecting more and more momentum each day. So um, I think it's really important to, to carve out some time for yourself where you actually connect with that sense of self in a way that's not, um, that's not being fueled by all this stimulation all the time. It's, it's so hard to, to have, have that time to, to connect with these things, I think. Well, T.S. Eliot said in the 1930s in his, in his chorus on the rock, and where is the, the wisdom we've lost in knowledge and where is the knowledge we've lost in information? And he also has these lines in, in the four quartets where he says, distracted from distraction by distraction. And that's the society we live in now. We're in an attention economy. Mm -hmm. and, and we're overstimulated. We've got information overload. It's non-stop, 24-7, and when I grew up, there, there was there were blank periods in the TV. TV started <laughs> at five o'clock, and it finished at eleven thirty. Yeah. And now we've got twenty four seven news. Who needs it? Mm -hmm. You know, I think we've overstimulated ourselves. We speeded everything up, and, and the result, in my view, is, is is a huge increase in mental, emotional, spiritual health issues. Sure. And if you look at the number of antidepressants that are uh, prescribed in every modern Western culture. I think in the, in the UK, it's certainly more than two per um, number in the population. Mm -hmm. It's 100 and something million every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very clear, isn't it? I mean, mental health is, is, is such a huge problem in society and it's exactly like you say, overstimulation, hyperactivity. Um, how, how do we dial down the hyperactivity in your mind? Is it... Well, how, how do we go forward from here? Well, part, part of it is your lifestyle. So um, when you're choosing what to do, you need to think, how is my day going to be? What's, what's going to be the structure of my day? I mean, I used to have to commute into London when I was you know, in, in the merchant bank and I got into a train every day and I drove to the station mm -hmm. and I drove back. Now I just go to a different room in my house and I have done for 35 years. And, and so I'm, I'm free of all that, all the commuting. Mm -hmm. that, that, and so I don't have that kind of stimulation. Then I think it's very important to, um, to have some periods of silence uh, in, you know, on a daily basis, which I certainly um, do myself. And there are walks, walks of the dogs and my wife. Um, these, are, these are a lifeline. And so you, you have to create what you can where you are. And of course, if you're living in a high-rise flat, in the middle of a city, then that's much dif more difficult than if you're living in Saint Colomb, you know, with the lake and the mountains just uh, on the helps. doorstep. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely.
Is so is there, is there any particular you just carve out time for silence or you have any particular um, process that you're engaged in? How does that look for you? Yes, well, I I I, I generally meditate you know, for twenty minutes, half an hour in the morning and the evening. Mm -hmm. I've become more disciplined about that just in the last period, um, because I began to realise that um, as you mature, you you think you realise that quality of your being becomes more important. Your activity is still important, but it's what informs your activity that really is important. And so I, I, and also, you, you, just for one's own calmness and peace of mind, just spending that time in silence mm -hmm. um, is invaluable. There's so much noise um, in our culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably even more important for younger people because they're even more overstimulated um, than, than my generation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's very, it's such a stark contrast, the two, the gap between those generations, you know, it's from one extreme to the other. I know you, you were exposed to media, but like you say, it was completely, um, it was in its nascent form in a lot of respects. So uh, now where it's this, we've got so much of this infrastructure that's been fleshed out, it's very hard to, to switch off and, um, uh, I can completely empathise with what you're saying. I can't imagine going a day without silence now. Like it's such a, it's such a core part of my routine that it actually has become abnormal for me to not do it now. It's, it's the, it's, it's it's got to that point, and it's just it's got such a, a regenerative effect for me in terms of resting, calming. And, and slowly my mind is getting quieter over time, which is nice. It's good to see some progress because when you first start, I think that's a lot of maybe what puts a lot of people off potentially is when you first start with exploring silence is that that incessant chatter in your mind is, is, is so prevalent. It's so uh, such a strong voice. Um, have you got any advice from your personal journey on, on how to navigate that or is this something that just no came? I think everybody has to learn it for themselves um, I mean you the classic thing to say is concentrate on your breath or to every time a thought arises just mm -hmm. let it go um, I mean I have a I've developed a, another sort of meditative practice <clears throat> they're based on my Peter Dunoff um, teaching where I I breathe in and out um, life light love peace and joy mm -hmm. and if I'm at my meditation uh, breath rhythm then that takes about a minute mm -hmm. um, they're one breath every 12 seconds to get through that cycle and so I, I focus I'm focusing just on these qualities and these are the, the qualities of the disciple according to Dunal for love light peace and joy so there you go but life um, is of course underlies all of that mm -hmm. Um, and and life gives rise to love, and love gives rise to life. Mm -hmm. That kind of re reciprocal, and love is 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 ontologically related to light, I think, and warmth because that's that's how it manifests in the most profound human experiences. Mm -hmm. And people experience light and love together. They don't experience them apart. Um, one is a quality of the other, and if you you find this in in, in you know, deep near-death experiences, which I've extensively researched, and other, other mystical experiences. And this is what, in the Greek tradition, is called gnosis, which is knowledge by identity, which is knowing because you are 
what it is your experiential knowing. knowledge, mm. right? Exactly. And it seems to me that the, this is the highest form of knowing, the deepest form of knowing. So part of what we're trying to do in the Galileo Commission is to reinstate um, the status of um, this deep experiential knowing. And I, in that sense, I think that deep near-death experience is a gnosis, an initiation. Mm -hmm. And it tells us something about what Harold Valar calls in, in the Galileo report, the deeper structures of reality. And that's where I think we need to go. We need to delve into these deeper structures in order to understand the whole picture. I couldn't agree more. It's a, it's a completely different wisdom, that experiential understanding. Um, I spent a lot of time intellectually understanding how to live, and it wasn't until I started Vipassana that I actually downloaded that and connected that bridge to the embodiment, the, the experiential understanding, and it was really, really revolutionary for me to... To, to feel to feel that understanding, right? This is what I've come to realize. This is it's about thinking less and feeling more. It, the The mind gets in the way a lot of the times, and and where you find yourself in the past or the future, and and it handicaps you because you can't take you out. So of the present. ego as well. Exactly, <laughs> and it's so it's so funny when you sit and observe that 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 voice that wants to um, articulate all the different permutations of a future event as if it can control all the variables to its Which advantage. It's we ridiculous. We're in life. It's, we don't control life. Exactly. Life, it's, life offers us all sorts of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's been um, interesting for me is, is to just surrender to those experiences. And, and don't, it doesn't mean surrender in the sense that you let everyone walk over you. It's, it's, it's about disengaging, you know, not, not resisting the, the things that happen in your life and, and going with them, exploring them, you know, I think, especially I love the, the, the Buddhist emphasis on suffering as well. Like we, by virtue of being alive, we're suffering, you know, we're going to have difficult things in our life that we're going to have to deal with. And it's not a pessimistic view. It's just a honest perspective to hold that you can come out of that suffering. It's a matter of perspective. And, um, yeah, that's, that's been um, a particularly powerful lesson for me to learn. And, and there's just way less resistance in my life now because you're, you're going with the flow, excuse the cliche. But no, I mean, but that's what it's about. Uh, it's, I would say get navigating on the flow, as it were. <clears throat> um, so there's an element, element of, of being carried by the flow, but there's mm -hmm. also an element of, of navigation, mm -hmm. um, which is the sort of image that used in, in, in his book by uh, Alan Watts. <clears throat> a Tao of the Watercourse Way. It's a great book on Taoism. Okay. And for me, Taoism is very, very important. And I actually read, I read a passage out of the Tao and reflect on it every day. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate <clears throat> more on the difference between going with the flow and navigating the flow? Or do you? How do well, you I see one as more going with the flow. Um, I, I feel that there's a slight more agency in navigating the flow mm -hmm. um, than just going with the flow, as if you. You're just floating down like like a mm -hmm. stick going down a, a river or a stream. Whereas if you're on a boat, you're still in the stream, um, but you're navigating a bit, mm -hmm. and, and and you you can then you can then chart a course. Um, I mean the, <clears throat> the the stick might get stuck, as it were, in in a cleft. Um, whereas you see it coming, well then well then you can you can take mm -hmm. evasive action and make stay you stay in the middle of the stream. So that's what I mean. It's this. It's very subtle because you. That we have to. We have to gauge 
the, the degree of agency mm -hmm. that's required um, in a particular situation and the degree of surrender. And I, I, this is something I've thought quite a lot about um, because, you know, the knowing when you can do something and when you have to just subir, as the French would say, you just have to, to suffer it, as it were. <laughs> Um, this is this is an important discernment to make in in different circumstances. Yeah, definitely. I guess my question to you on on that topic would be then this idea of free will, right? Because how how strong is that agency that we have, in your opinion? How how much influence do we have? Well, it's a very interesting question. Obviously, um, I mean, if you if uh, People tell me from a non-dual perspective, and my friend Peter Fennick, who's the ex-president, emeritus president of the network, he says if you're in a non-dual state, there is no agency. Things arise and they disappear. And so agency is, is a category error if you're in the non-dual state. Uh, I'm not in a non-dual state. Um, and so for me, uh, what my critique of the way the issue is set up is always a free will versus determinism. Mm -hmm. You know, as if there is uh, a kind of stark dualism between the two, it's either one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think uh, my, my view of, of free will, in inverted commas, some people say free will as well, uh, is a systems view. And, and so I, I, I think we, we exist in multiple levels of, of system. Um, you know, we've got our, our temperament, and we've got our upbringing, we've got our surroundings, we've got our family, I've got our friends, we've got our social situation. And all of these nested um, systems in which we live, each of those has a certain influence on us. And, and so the, 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 what arises at a particular time um, is a function of, of the evolution of the, of the larger system. However, um, a lot of the way that this is set up within science, like in Benjamin Libet's experiments, is, is on reflexes. Um, so because of the, the, the timing of the brain, the reflexes and the intention and awareness and so on, people say, oh, well, it's all done in the brain. And, and I, I don't think this is a very good model. I think it's trivial um, if you're just saying free will depends on response times of finger movements. And what, what Dennis Alexander says in, in, a, in a profound reflection on this is, Free will is, is when you have a deliberate, a deliberative process. Uh, and so you, you, you have, let's say, you've got an important decision to make and you can either do one thing or another or a third thing. And so in, in, in that, you, in a deliberative process, you would weigh up you know, the pros and cons of a particular um, view or course of action. And then you reach a conclusion that you know, for various reasons, um, this is not, I'll, I'll take option B. Mm -hmm. um, of course, what then? What the determinists will then say is, ah, of course, the, um, you, you took option B and you were bound to take option B because that's the option you took. Well, that's a circular argument. Or because of your conditioning, maybe. Or your conditioning, yes. But the, 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 thing, the thing is that there's a, there's a time asymmetry here, which Bergson pointed out. So Bergson said that if you are, if you are explaining something backwards, of course you can you can create a series of, mm -hmm. <coughs> of causal mechanisms sure. you know, to show how it was inevitable that this decision would be made. 
And but if you're if you're open to the future, then because no decision has yet been made, then you've got an asymmetrical situation where all the possibilities are still there. Mm-hmm. And so one needs to think a little more subtly about this business of of uh, free will. Yeah, it's a fascinating question and something I've thought about a lot too because I think I think you're right with that last point in keeping open and 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 not collapsing probability in on itself too quickly by reacting. I think then you then you really give yourself more of a chance to uh, be conscious about the way you're moving forward. But I well, and creativity, you see. I mean, uh, I think the universe is creative. I think it's creating all the time. And I also think that there are there are multiple actualities that can come out of possibilities. Um, and so there, there are different decisions. I mean, sometimes um, you, you, you know, very directly you take for a walk. I used to do this sometimes. I, I do it when I let the dog choose. <clears throat> and then I just go, OK, I'll go with the dog's mm-hmm. view. Joey does this with us, our dog. He he always suggests going a particular direction, and often he'll then, if we're in a forest path, he'll he'll want to go the long way around. Um, so that would that's a, that's a, that's a, that's kind of interactive system between you and your dog in terms of decision making about where you're going to go on a walk. Um, but I think I think that from a legal point of view, and this is again a, a, a very interesting question because if you if you abolish free will, you abolish responsibility, and and this would be a da- this is a dangerous move to make sure. as far as the law is concerned, um, because then you would say, well, your neurochemical state you know, caused mm-hmm. you to um, take this course of action, which is actually a crime, which some people have tried to argue. Yes, no, I mean it's a live issue, and and you you would then get experts on both sides, and one neuropsychiatrist will say, well, it was definitely the chemical state that produced the action mm-hmm. and the other will argue against that mm-hmm. but in terms of the moral order of society if you get rid of free will and responsibility um, then I, I think the results are undermine kind of the social fabric yeah I agree you can't absolve responsibility for personal choices and personal action for sure the I changed my mind on free will a little bit recently because for me you can you only have control of the way you direct your attention you can direct it externally or internally so if you if you apply it externally you're likely to be a slave to your conditioning you're going to react mm, without yeah. being conscious you're yeah. going to go around the world navigating the world unconsciously so that means if you have your attention going inwardly if you understand that on a deep level you really do surrender to the law of nature what they would call dharma and in that sense, you, you're you're always going to be in line with the law of nature, which is just the path of least resistance. It comes back to what we were saying. So well, which is the Tao. Yes, <coughs> no, which way. is the flow. Exactly. Um, which, which which is a a sense also what the right thing is to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in 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 the Tao, the the right thing to do is never extreme. Sure. Um, he who stands on tiptoes will not remain steady for very long. <laughs> you know, that's one of us. I think some of them twenty six or so. So these these images give you something to reflect on, um, and also you don't try to try and control things. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going with the Tao, um, you you try to make your actions suit the circumstances. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but but in a supportive way because yep. the dough nourishes life. Nourishes. It's in a harmonious way, right? Exactly. In, in a way where there's no resistance and 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 coming back to what we started the, at the beginning talking about was was in alignment with those values. I feel as well, which is super important because if you stay true to those values, you're going to naturally be proactive and and go forward on the path that is in alignment with the Dharma, the Tao. Uh, the middle path, so to speak. Um, well, and also that's phronesis of, of, of um, Aristotle, which is practical wisdom. I've done a lot of work on character and values. Mm-hmm. It's another aspect of my work. Uh, and so the middle way for Aristotle is neither reckless uh, nor cowardly, yeah. but cur- courageous, because then you're, you're, you're neither extreme. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so the phronesis, practical wisdom, is knowing where the mean is and therefore mm-hmm. what the sensible option is and the stoics were not dissimilar definitely that that that's that's the hard part and sometimes you have to stray out of bounds to find that middle path sometimes it's it's not um it's something that uh i've only really started to appreciate that middle path a lot recently especially when i was younger having very extreme perspectives on on the world and on on myself as well so it's been a constant refinement to, to try and find that that middle path but I feel like it's important this is part of the learning process is to dip your toe in the water in the extremes um, both well ends. as T.S. Eliot says you have to go too far before you can find out how far you can go exactly <clears throat> and so there is a, that I mean that's a kind of young person's observation um, that's when you, that's when you try and push things in life mm-hmm. you push things to the limits um, <clears throat> and then you find out what those limits are but if you <laughs> yeah. don't do the pushing you won't find the limits either yeah definitely it's, it's an important part of, of the learning process I think it's, uh, yeah and um, just this part of being human right that's that's the human condition you don't it is you, you, you don't we're perfectly imperfect you know that's that's, that's the nature of it Panpsychism. Have you come across that term? Yes. Um, Is that how you would characterize the the nature of? No, I I, I actually how would you... I I favor um, panentheism over panpsychism. So pan panpsychism, everything is God. Um, panentheism is everything is within God, but also God is beyond. Mm-hmm. So that there's an immanent, which is the God within, mm-hmm. and there's a transcendent, which is a God beyond. And, and I, I feel that understanding this in terms of awareness and consciousness, awareness is, I think, both in, immanent inside ourselves, mm-hmm. but it's also transcendent. There is, a, in my view, a universal mind in which we, we are microcosms of that, of that universal mind. So I, I, and I take that idea from the late 19th century New Thought. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people thinking in these terms until the behaviorists came along and said it's all in the brain and behavior. Right. Um, but I think we, uh, philosophy is definitely moving um, away from a sort of too cruder materialism and naturalism and physicalism uh, towards a more nuanced approach. And in fact, one of the recent in fact, the most recent issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies is exactly on panpsychism, okay. which I think is significant. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's, it, it seems that that's being discussed more in universities and more broadly in, in academia. It's, so you would, maybe I, I don't understand it fully, you would characterise the panpsychism 
as as everything is the transcendental mind. No, God mind. isn't. God is nature. Is God? God is nature. That's so, panpsychism. So Goethe, Goethe was a panpsychist. Right. Okay. Um, whereas panentheism is a more subtle version, which incorporates both um, the natural and the, the the divine within. Right. Okay. And the divine beyond. And, and that's what I was saying about consciousness. I think if you think about the nature of consciousness, it's both imminent because we experience it mm -hmm. ourselves, but it's transcendent because they, there are, there's, a, there's a root and ground of consciousness which is clearly beyond us. Perfect. I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you okay. very much. Great. Pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>